we're at this, I think, tipping point where action on these big shared problems like climate change and inequality is not really questioned. But there's debates about how, right? And, and who takes the lead. And that's where things get tougher. Welcome back to The Empire's New Clothes. I'm your host, Brad from MacArthur. Just as a reminder, if you like what we're doing here, like, subscribe, rate, and review. Helps us get this out to the most people possible so we can keep doing this every single week. This week, we're speaking with Andrew Winston. He's a best-selling author with numerous books on megatrends that impact the U.S. and globally. His most recent book is titled Net Positive. We dive into that one. It looks at how companies can thrive by giving more than they take. We look at topics like climate change, inequality, the social divisions in the U.S., information echo chambers, conspiracy theories. It's a wide-ranging conversation, and I hope you enjoy. Andrew, thank you so much for joining today. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Thanks so much. Glad to be here. Yeah. So, big news in your end. You just had a book launch. Yeah, right. Yesterday. Um, it worked out. <laughs> we scheduled it, I guess, a while ago, and it worked out that this is the time that my new book's coming out after about two years of work. It's exciting. Yeah, that's a long time. <laughs> books take longer than people want to admit. Um, I always tell people it's great to have written a book. Do- doing it is... <laughs> Doing it is tough. I don't know many writers who enjoy kind of the day to day. Yeah, I uh, I can't even imagine. Uh, everyone I think has a dream of writing a book someday. I'm probably one of those, but yeah. I'm not sure I'll get around to it. <laughs> tough. I mean, that's part of my job, right? I mean, I kind of I write, I speak, I consult, so I make the time for it. And actually, the pandemic, you know, for good or bad, it, it ended up freeing up my schedule at the time that I had agreed to write this with my co-author. And so the, the timing worked out for that. I basically just buried myself for, you know, a year and we were all buried. So it was, yeah. you know, I was like everyone. Quarantine in front of the computer, just got to pump out those words. So, yeah. so you, you're a storyteller and you tell particular stories. I would also say a, a researcher and um, connector of dots and explain what exactly do you do and how did you get interested initially? I was hoping you'd be able to tell me what I do. I, have a, <laughs> I, have a, I do have a kind of strange existence and career and I get asked all the time, you know, students, MBA students maybe come and ask me like, how do I get to do what you're doing? And I say, well, first you write a bestseller and I'm, I'm, I'm only like partly kidding. I, a lot just kind of happened. Um, and it's really hard to say how you get sometimes from one place to the next, but Um, My job in the world, I think, is I work mainly with kind of large companies um, and executives. My job is really to help them understand the world's megatrends, the really big stuff that's shifting. Um, But, you know, kind of all within the sustainability lens, the social and environmental pressures, how the role of business um, in society is changing the expectations of business and, and help companies become organizations that work to build a thriving world that are out there trying to serve the world and and solve the world's problems, not just maximize their short-term, you know, shareholder uh, earnings. So it's a, it's a kind of um, Sisyphean task, I guess. There's constantly this, this boulder you're pushing uphill because we're we're going against just decades of of kind of um, dogma on, you know, businesses should just focus on shareholders and that's breaking down now, which is really amazing. It's an amazing time to kind of be in this field. So I, I write, I've, uh, this is my fourth book that just came out. I write a lot, um, blogs, articles for Harvard Business Review and other places. And I speak a lot. I've done hundreds of keynotes over the years. Um, I've been doing this about 20 years. My first book came out 15 years ago. 
Okay. Um, I, you know, my story of getting into this is, I mean, it, I say it kind of jokingly, but it really came out of being unemployed <laughs> and finding myself searching. I was, um, I worked in the media business for my first kind of career, um, big, big companies, you know, like Time Warner and MTV, Viacom, and then went to a dot-com and then like it was a dot-com crash. Everything crashed, everything folded. And so I found myself back home going, what else do I, I just gotten married. Um, my wife was gainfully employed, so I could kind of step back and say, what do I really care about? And I realized I cared about the environment, but not so much in the, you know, the, the people say tree hugger in a kind of critical way. I don't mean, I don't say it that way. I just mean, I, I wasn't coming from a place of being this super outdoorsy guy. I just, I just was practical about it. I just thought the system that we've kind of been going on just can't continue. Um, we just use too much stuff. It just kind of got more and more clear to me. So mm-hmm. I tried to find a way to, to combine this worry and concern about natural resources and the world with my business background. And that's, that kind of kicked off. And I went back to grad school and, and started writing. And that's, that's, you know, kind of went from there. You know, I can, I can hear folks coming at this from a narrative of, oh, sustainability, environment, climate change, hoorah, we need that. Or, well, it's a lie, or it's just this fluffed up stuff for liberals to course their own agenda. And it's a negative thing against big business and um, American jobs. You know, reading and preparing for this, I've heard you mention quite a few large corporations that have quite recently flipped their position in in, in simple terms. Can you kind of throw out some some of those larger names and maybe some of those stories of – it seems like there's a bit of a tide change happening. Well, I hope so. I mean, I think it's like all kind of deep changes or societal changes, you know, they can kind of hit these tipping points and they happen really Mm -hmm. fast, but it took like 30 or 40 years to happen fast. Like everything was kind of building like, you know, uh, LGBTQ rights, you know, um, you know, gay marriage, like it just kind of happened quickly, but there was decades. Um, And I think we're, we're there um, in a lot of ways on climate change and kind of understanding that we have to do something on climate change. For the most part, I mean, there's there's a few pockets in the world of conservative political political parties, and unfortunately, in the U.S., um, you know, there's one party that doesn't seem to want to do anything about climate change. Think thinks more towards what you were saying that it's it's a liberal plot somehow to take over the economy, or it's just anti-business. And the case I've been making for many years, and, and is core to my my new book, is that this is the path to profit and and um, thriving for business that. Solving the world's problems is something companies should be doing. Solving problems is something they do, filling customer needs. And that, you know, they won't thrive as a business unless people and planet are thriving as well. So um, we are at a time where more and more large companies are, are kind of stepping up to set much more aggressive goals, in particular on, on carbon. There's been a fairly short list of the companies that you've heard about or that have taken serious action um, for a number of years. And, and one of the, the best known and kind of often wins in surveys on, you know, what's the most sustainable company is, is Unilever, the, the um, Dutch and English-based consumer products company. And my co-author in my new book, Net Positive, is Paul Pullman, who, who ran the Unilever for 10 years and was the one who brought sustainability into kind of the core strategy and made it his mission. Um, and he's been really the most proactive, you know, company CEO I think we've ever had on, on this topic and has been very successful. 
So Unilever has been one that not just me saying this and not just because I worked with him, but but there's you know surveys of experts and it basically wins those surveys you know year after year for good reason. And, and Unilever's done a ton of things that reduce its footprint that really work on the social side, try to improve livelihoods. They've set these incredibly aggressive goals and moved towards them. Um, they've had programs like uh, their Life Boy Soap where they um, teach hand washing around the world in, in poor developed area, developing areas so kids don't die of easily preventable diseases. And this is just part of the brand. It's part of what the, the company and, the, and that soap does. It's not, it's not considered philanthropy. It's part of their marketing. Mm-hmm. It's part of what they do. And they, they are out there in part to sell soap, but to solve this problem. Um, and they've done a, a lot on their, their carbon footprint, on, on pack, and they're starting uh, down the road on packaging. It's been one of the kind of weaker areas, but it's something they're all talking about now. So Unilever's been a leader, but there's, there's other big names that have pros and cons. Walmart has, has kind of pushed its suppliers for 15 years now to be more sustainable, and they've set really aggressive goals to be, quote, regenerative, um, which is, you know, the kind of cutting edge. Um, and, but a lot of people criticize Walmart for their, their salaries and, you know, the labor side. You know, companies are not black and white, right? There's mm-hmm. things they're doing well, things they're not. The tech giants have gotten very aggressive. Microsoft and Google have um, really the most aggressive carbon reduction goals in the world. They're planning to um, offset or reduce carbon in the, in the atmosphere equal to the carbon they've emitted since they were founded. Um, and, and, and they're going even further than that. So there's, you know, there's aggressive companies, there's longtime leaders like Patagonia and Ikea, um, Natura in, in, in Brazil and, and South America that have made finding a way to make products in a sustainable way kind of just core to, to who they are. Um, you know, Ikea generates more power now from renewables than it needs. Like that's hmm. being net positive. So the number's growing about 20 or 25% of the large, the largest 2000 public companies have a science-based target now for, for carbon, meaning they're planning to reduce at the pace that scientists say we need. It's not all of them. It needs to be more, but five, seven years ago, there were like none. So now it's 20% of that group and it's growing really, really fast. So we're at this, I think, tipping point where action on these big shared problems like climate change and inequality is not really questioned, but there's debates about how, right? And, and who takes the lead. And that's where things get tougher. Mm-hmm. Are there any organizations that someone would classically think of as um, being in the legacy energy industry and doing small, medium, more radical changes towards, because if you look at some of the data, um, wind and solar are out-competing fossil fuel energy in a lot of areas. And so maybe walk me through a little bit of that. um, And if there's any, you know, examples of it happening, like, yeah. Yeah, no, it's a great question because one of the, one of my favorite stories of a company that that's kind of made a, a, a transition, made a really kind of big pivot and fundamental change is a company called Orsted um, out of Europe. And they were originally the Danish oil natural gas company. And it's, I think it's a little over 10 years ago now, they, they started shifting their business fundamentally and basically started selling their fossil fuel assets. They really saw the writing on the wall and said, we're going down a path. Renewables are going to get cheaper. It's also the right thing to do. We can't keep producing carbon. And so they sold off coal and natural gas, and they're almost, in, I think, entirely out of that business now. And they're now the world's largest mm-hmm. offshore wind company. Um, so they're incredibly successful. 
they produce, I think, 90, they've reduced their carbon 96% or something. They basically have almost brought it all the way down. And, you know, their valuation in the market is really high relative to their size. They're like a tenth the size of BP, but their market cap is like only, is like half. So they're, they're like, you know, hmm. five times more valuable per, per dollar of revenue than BP. There's just this recognition that this is the direction they're going. Um, big energy giants like Total have set aggressive goals to decarbonize. But it, look, it's a sector that this is an existential change and threat. And besides a couple like, like Orsted and another company, Nested, um, most of them are not planning immediately to get out of their core business, right? It's too big. Um, and the Exxons of the world are still out there, I think, you know, kind of fighting change. They say they believe in climate change. They say they want a carbon price. But then they basically undermine it, you know, if there's a chance, if there's a chance to. So the fossil fuel industries, you know, I, I think the path we go down is not necessarily engaging with them to change their business. It's making fossil fuels irrelevant, right? Because as you said, renewables have gotten much cheaper. And in fact, about 90% of the new energy that was put on the electric grid globally in 2020 was solar and wind. Like it's actually, the, the battle's kind of over. We're not building massive, massive amounts of, you know, coal, natural gas, whatever. So it, ha it is cheaper now to build solar and wind in almost everywhere in the world, and it's only getting cheaper. So fossil fuels will decline. It's just how fast? Is it fast mm -hmm. enough for the science? That's the, that's the big question. You know, when I hear you say we need to make fossils irrelevant, I, I can hear some people be like, oh, well, that means making me irrelevant. <laughs> and what, how... How do you think about that? Because I'm I'm hearing I'm hearing you say that there there needs to be a really large transition. Yeah. And it's one thing to say for me to sell a bit of oil stock and buy some renewable stock like with my finances. It's a completely other thing to be in a societal group or an economic area that is rooted in one technology and right. need to transition to another that possibly doesn't even exist there. Um, how, how does, how does this look like? Well, I mean, you know, when I say we need to make fossil fuels irrelevant, it's that's from a environmental and kind of scientific perspective, meaning there's only so much carbon we can put in the air and try to keep the, the temperature under control mm -hmm. and everything's at risk, right? This is humanity. This is the fate of, of the world. So that's just the science, right? But then there's a, there's a kind of tremendous amount of effort and discussion in the sustainability community, in the you know, kind of global government community about a just transition, meaning we're going to be transitioning. It's just happening economically. Um, and just keep in mind, there's been many transitions throughout history where people were left behind. There was, you know, we went to cars from horse and buggy. Um, Blockbuster disappeared when Netflix and streaming movies, you know, came about. There's there's always these transitions. I think we have a responsibility, you know, for a just transition and for what would be a, a net positive transition to help people transition to to go to those communities, help them transition, help them find training for for new jobs, provide them with pensions and things that that protect them. But we can't. We can't hold on to the jobs just for the job's sake because mm -hmm. the planet won't take it. And we're on the planet. It's not like this is just to save the polar bears, right? This is whether we can function and thrive as a, as a species. Um, so I, I think we do need to take care of people. 
It's actually fewer people than than most realize. I mean, the number of coal miners in in the U.S. is, I think, less than fifty thousand that actually go and dig up coal because those industries have gotten very efficient. These giant trucks that only need a couple people but move tons and tons. So there's already been this reduction. It just it actually wouldn't cost that much versus what we're spending now on responding to the pandemic and building out infrastructure. And you know, it wouldn't cost that much to help help people transition. Um, but there's going to be change, right? And some communities that have been dependent on being a coal community are, are not going to exist. That's going to happen anyways. That's not a policy thing. It's an economic thing. So the question is, what do we do politically and socially and kind of morally to help mm-hmm. people? So kind of looking at the, um, the power structures in this, there, there seems to be almost two levels. There's the electorate and then there's these corporations. Mm-hmm. And elected officials, they can declare a climate goal. And if they don't meet it, maybe they get voted out. Um, but a CEO, if they declare a climate goal and they don't meet it, they might still get a massive bonus and nothing really happens. And, and you can say one is more powerful than the other. There's pros and cons of each, but how do you kind of break apart these two power structures and how are they each important in their own ways? And, and, um, how do they kind of have their faults and like, which, which one do we need to rally behind more or mm-hmm. watch out for? Well, I mean, if, if the two, if you're basically saying the power structures of, you know, policy and government versus kind of business and private enterprise, I wish they were two separate power structures. Honestly, in the U.S., they're way too connected, right? We have mm-hmm. legalized corruption in the U.S. Companies have co-opted topics. They effectively own a lot of our Congress people who follow their lead and take a lot of money from them. We have way too much money in politics. So they're, they're kind of, it is one agenda on, on some level. Um, but you're talking about the, you know, kind of the checks on power. In theory, yes, we can vote someone out if they don't kind of do the things we want. It, it's harder to do than we realize. And, you know, CEOs can be pushed out. And it's happened for, you know, environmental missteps, but not often. I think the pressure that drives, that will drive companies will come from employees more than their board or, you know, anybody kind of firing them. It's said that the employees demand um, that the companies they work for and buy from have values and purpose. And increasingly, the investors are asking very tough questions of these companies. So I, I, I think the pressure is there. It is building. Um, you know, it might not be enough in and of itself, but it kind of creates a business case for business leaders to kind of stick with it mm-hmm. and go down this path because they, they see it increasingly as valuable. So you think the change might come more from within an organization than without of, of uh, consumers being like, yeah. this is the kind of products that I want, provide me. It's yeah, more internal. That. There, look, there's some pressure from consumers. Mm-hmm. It's probably always been a little overstated. There's surveys for many years where if you ask someone, will you buy something that's more environmental, like 80, whatever, 80%, most say yes. How they actually buy doesn't quite follow that. But yeah. But what has changed, I think, is that there's more transparency. Um, people can get more information and want more information about every product they buy. You know, what's in it? What's the ingredients? Where did it come from? Who made it? Where they paid a living wage? And and I think it's an all else equal, meaning if, if it's a product that doesn't cost really any more and it does the thing it, you know, it needs to do, but is the better sustainability story, I think like a huge percentage of, of the consumer base wants that, right? Mm-hmm. They may not pay more for it. Um, 
even though sometimes it's short-sighted. You, you might pay more for a longer-lasting piece of clothing, right? And, and so it actually works for you. Or a more energy-efficient car or a refrigerator or whatever. You might pay more, but actually save money over time. So it's, it's not as simple even as, you know, is it more expensive? So I don't know if consumers will be the pressure. I think they're part of it. I do think, again, the employees, the, the, the race for talent and, you know, attracting and retaining people is, is really on right now. It's, it, there's a lot of industries that are short yeah. of people. And millennials and Gen Z surveys repeatedly show they want values where they work. They, they, they want a place they can be proud of and a place they agree with. So I, I do think that's it. But, you know, you were talking about the we were talking about the two power structures of government and business. It's, it's not an either or. We basically need systemic change. Something as big as climate or inequality means we need change where civil society, business, and government are actually working together um, in mm-hmm. ways we haven't comfortably before, but we're going to have to. It's, it, these problems are way too big for any, no matter how big a company is or how big any single government is, they're too big. They're shared problems and we have to work together to solve them. Yeah. So what are, what are some unique vulnerabilities that North America is exposed to through a changing climate? Well, I mean, it seems like, um, I mean, there's been extreme weather all over the world, but North America has been hit pretty hard, actually, globally between, um, you know, increased um, El Ninos or Ninas kind of in those cycles, they've gotten stronger and more powerful. So the storms get bigger, big hurricane seasons, the, the fires out west, um, the the major kind of um, water reservoirs in the southwest are drying up, like Lake Mead. You know, the every you know everything that's powering the southwest with hydro, all these things are dropping. So, I mean, the, the, if you look at the science and the, and the maps, basically, part of the U.S. where I live in the Northeast will get a lot more rain, and we see that when there's a storm, they're often enormous, right? There's so much comes down. We just set a record in New York and Connecticut for the amount of rain in a single hour. And, and it broke the record by a lot. Like there's there's just more water in the atmosphere. So some places get wetter and the Southwest, unfortunately, is just getting drier. And, and you know, kind of more and more of it is just really desert and it's going to be harder and harder. And, and places are just getting very, very hot. I mean, you know, summer temperatures in like Phoenix can be 115, right? I mean, these are close to unlivable. So the impacts are going to be real. And then over over kind of medium to longer term, the sea level rise is going to change our coastline. Um, I grew up in South Florida. Um, I, I don't think if you look at the science that Miami will look like it does now or will survive in the same way over the next generation. I think parts of it or maybe all of it will be underwater regularly. We're going to have to deal with what that looks like around the world. Mm-hmm. Is there anything North America is uniquely positioned to capitalize on? in the transitioning environment, moving to these different energy sources? Well, I mean, look, we have, look, we have tremendous natural resources, right? I mean, we have, Mm -hmm. you know, Mexico and the U.S. um, both have, you know, an amazing amount of open, sunny areas and and windy areas. Canada's got huge hydro resources. We have the resources. You could build enough power for the North America through wind farms in the Dakotas um, and Iowa, you know, down the middle. And, but you would need a better grid, right? So, I mean, in theory, we should be positioned well. We're one of the wealthiest countries in the world. We have resources. We have innovation. We have a lot of the leading companies that, that produce, um, you know, a lot of these technologies. So I, I think we can. Um, we're just in, in such a political battle 
right? Where, again, there's a party that doesn't want to act on climate, and that makes it very difficult. Um, you know, there's so many debates here about how much we do or how much we spend on climate within one party and just ignores that the other one doesn't, isn't planning to do anything. So, you know, we have to somehow get, you know, a, a kind of a tipping point of enough people in, in government at city, state, and national level to move as fast as we need to. And, and that means significant investment, both public and private, investment in infrastructure so that everybody has a chance to build businesses and live lives that are lower carbon. We need, we need systemic change. What do, you, what do you think the main point is from the right? Because I, I understand the left's perspective. And the main point from the right against climate change, if, if energy is, is a cheaper investment in these renewables... And it's going to be creating jobs. Like, what? What is the main counter argument there? Well, I mean, there's not a, there's not. A, I mean, this sounds bad. There's not a legitimate counter argument. Like, we, it's like the house is on fire, and you're arguing whether you should put the fire out. Like, we have to. We have to get rid of carbon. We have to move down this path, or the the planet's going to be very unpleasant for huge portions of us. Um, so this isn't really a choice. The, the, I think, you know, I think their arguments have been. Let's put aside the people that are calling it a hoax and, and just think it's made up. I, I, I don't know how to answer those people um, because it's, it's kind of ridiculous at this point. But I think there's, you know, look, there's a conservative philosophy of smaller government and the kinds of actions we need on really big things require bigger government, require a government that will put a price on carbon, right? So that our, our form of capitalism and our markets can actually work the way they're supposed to. You know, the, the, the conservatives like free markets, but... A market that doesn't price the things in the market isn't going to work right, right? We don't, we don't charge anything for putting carbon in the air, right? And so you're not paying for that, that impact as a business or, or as a city. Um, and so I think, though, there's just, a, there's just kind of a reaction to anything that looks like it's going to be a big kind of government solution. And that's, that's part of it. Um, and I think there's a polluter pays principle kind of running through environmentalism and through you know, any, anytime you want to do something to clean up, there's, there's a sense that business is going to have to pay more. Um, and that means, you know, taxing business or, or, you know, actually holding them accountable. And that's not appealing to a, a lot of people, um, you know, who want business to be kind of have free reign. The neoliberal model of economics for the last 50 years says, leave companies completely alone, lower taxes, trickle down, supply side, all of that is the same story that we'll all be better off if we just, you know, get out of the way of business. And, I, you know, I just don't think that the data and the experience has proved, proven that out. So I, I think it's just there's there's a classic part of it that's about kind of just smaller government, right? But I think now in the U.S., it's just become part of the, the tribe, right? We're in very kind of distinct tribes. And the tribe on the right right now um, is anti-democratic, frankly. I mean, they supported an insurrection to overthrow the government. Um, which is not a minor thing and is historically pretty significant. But the tribe says we don't really follow the science, right? We, we don't, we, that's elitism. We don't really want to talk about science for the vaccines, for the disease, you know, or, or for climate. Um, and that, you know, we should be able to do whatever we want, right? It's freedom. That's kind of the core, the core of it. I feel, though, that, you know, I have the freedom to have a planet that's safe for me and my kids, 
you know, I have the freedom. I'd like the freedom to walk down the street and not worry about people who aren't vaccinated. You know, like there's lots of things that are freedom. And I think we, with freedom comes responsibility. Um, and that's part of what's, what's lacking in, in that philosophy in, in my mind. So you just mentioned a bit about the divisions in the U.S. and somewhat about the inequality at place. And, and I noticed in your, it just came out, so I haven't chance to write, read it, but your book, Net Positive, it's talking about a lot of the, the dynamics we're currently discussing, but also inequality. And so I'd be curious how you're connecting those together. You know, it's interesting. I, I got into this field kind of from an environmental perspective. I got a degree in environmental management and, and climate has been my main focus um, for some just, again, practical reasons. I think if we don't tackle climate, everything else is moot. But it's, it's become clear to me, I mean, and many people, we kind of, you know, always knew that, you don't. it's not a separate thing, the planet and people, right? It's, it's one system, mm-hmm. but the, the actions we need to take, the, the impacts are so interrelated. So, you know, for example, you know, who gets hit the hardest when there's, when there's floods in a city or when someplace gets too hot to live? Um, it, it's the people without the resources, right? I mean, so it's, it, it is a justice issue. Um, the West, the richer countries have produced, the OECD countries have produced 80 plus percent of all the emissions in, in the atmosphere. And it's going to impact more places that are already hot, poor, you know, it, it's just, a, it's just a plain injustice. Um, and there's also, you know, as inequality has gotten worse and basically all the wealth and income gains of the last 40 years, you know, have gone to 1%. You also can map out, and I've seen this data, like the carbon footprint per person and the 1% produces just, you know, 50 times more than hmm. what what we can each do on average if we want to really reduce and and just drastically more than the, you know, than the bottom. Uh, so there's just an inequality in, in how we're how we're dealing and creating this problem and, and how we're dealing with it. Um, and finally, I think, you know, there's something that the Green New Deal and things like it have kind of gotten right. It's those, these kinds of proposed laws, they're a little bit kitchen sink, right? Everything's in there, but there's this sense that unless you bring along people, unless everybody's a part of it, unless justice is a part of it, you talk about jobs, you talk about health for them, you're not going to get a a critical mass. You're not going to get enough people behind climate action unless everybody's there. So separating them out and saying, let's just deal with climate or deal with inequality. It's just not effective, right? It's just not, you're not going to get the support you need which I think is a really compelling argument, you know, for change, which is everybody needs to be on board. So we have to get people who are worried right now about their income, you know, falling into poverty um, and to get them engaged to say, this is a path to prosperity is to tackle climate change together. Is, is that somewhat the core premise to the book or do you elaborate further? Cause I, I know the, I mean, the title net positive, it's like, it's not net neutral, it's net right. positive. Yeah, the premise is, I mean, we're, we're writing about how do you build a company that serves the world, that creates positive impact on everyone they touch, right? They increase the well-being of employees and customers and consumers, communities, um, suppliers, everybody they, they work with their impact. And for a multinational, that's a lot of people, right? It's the world. Um, and we want a business to be positive kind of at every scale, like every product, not have one product that's damaging the environment and one that's positive, but everything has a positive impact. This is a North Star, right? This is not easy. Um, We're not there yet, even close. But the fundamental question of the book really is, you know, is the world better off because your business is in it? And um, that's a question that, you know, most companies 
pretty much all companies could not answer yes necessarily. There's there's things they're doing that improve well-being. There's things they're not. It's a complicated world. Um, the premise is that we are facing these challenges. You know, climate and inequality are so severe and and accelerating that we can't just do like incremental change or even shoot for zero. We have to start being regenerative, restorative. We have to be positive, um, you know, have a positive impact. And that's the only way we're going to get to this kind of scale that we need. And we can really only do that together. The book really builds to this idea of partnerships um, between business and, and NGOs and governments that we have to get everyone at the table for our biggest problems. So it's, it's about collab, you know, collaboration and courage. That's really kind of the core of it. Mm-hmm. You know, it's interesting that makes me think about breaking it down further just to the individual level. Is the world a better place because I'm here? I know. Or perhaps is my neighborhood a better place because I'm here? Throw back to Mr. Rogers. Um, but but how do you think about that? Because there's the, there's the individual, there's the local community, there's businesses, yeah. there's multinational corporations, there's, there's states. Um, and it, at the lowest level, there's the individual. So yeah. how do you think about kind of those relationships between those different um, – uh, stratifications, I'd say. Yeah. It's funny. I, part of what has kind of changed me from writing this book was starting to ask that question you asked about yourself. It's, we have in the book kind of early on the, the, to start to build an organization or a business like this starts with yourself and starts with, we have a chapter, it's just called, how much do you care? And do you care about what's going on in the world? So there's this kind of gut check and, you know, it, it's, um, I mean, look, there's so many philosophies about this, about the one and are we all connected? I mean, we could go into kind of Buddhism or Zen or something about all those stratifications maybe are partly arbitrary, right? Or partly the, the lines are blurry between self and the whole, right? We all contribute to the to the global issues. We all connect. I mean, if the pandemic didn't teach us the fact that we're all connected, then we really are missing out on something, right? We have We have one immune system you know, everyone, we're all sharing this moment, right? We're wearing masks for staying at home. I mean, it could have been this time of global connection and, and kind of looking at each other as humans and saying, we're all doing the same thing. And unfortunately it's brought out, you know, kind of tribes again, and there's been fights about it, but I do think there's this understanding that we're all connected. So those, you know, the action, you know, always starts with yourself. It has to, but that we need, change and action at all those levels. So, you know, there's been a big debate in kind of the environmental community about, you know, most of the the pressure to change the world has been like individual things like you, you can recycle, you can drive a different car. And the reality is, yes, of course, we have to make different choices. But it's at those bigger levels that change really happens. You need policy change and infrastructure change. Like, if we want everyone to drive an EV, it isn't just getting them to choose it, there needs to be charging stations, right, everywhere. So there's, there's a need to think about all those levels at once. And it's, so that makes it kind of complicated. But, you know, I, I, this just reminds me, this question reminds me, I was asked once years ago, like, does it matter if I buy, you know, green cleaning products for my house? And I said, look, you know, we're one of 8 billion people. Um, so no, of course, it doesn't matter. But of course, it does, right? It's, it's both. And that's the reality because everything we do adds up to the whole. Um, and, and, and that's the challenge is, is to, to feel like your actions matter, even though, of course, they're only one, right? There's, there's only one of you. But 
your actions add up to this to this whole and that's that kind of connects all those all those levels and scales mm-hmm. you know that makes me think of the jfk quote of it's not what your country can do or ask not what your country can do for you but what you yeah. can do for your country and thinking about applying that to today i have a hard time number one believing most people feel that way mm. and secondly i have a hard time imagining most people believe in the same country like there there's feels like there's two versions of america almost that people are fighting for do we need to resolve that before we can work on something like climate change or can we do climate change in the midst of this identity crisis? Yeah, it's a really, I mean, look, that's the kind of the biggest question, right? Like how do we come together? And, and we're in a, I think the pendulum swings, you know, over time, there's times where there's a sense certainly of, does. there's times where there's a sense of individual, our country's always been more about the individual, but we, we really have swung pretty wildly into a place where, you know, tens of millions of people really kind of feel like it's every man for themselves, every person on their own. It's an, it's an unfortunate time for that to be so much on the rise because we need group action. I don't know if we can, I mean, look, I, I was working on climate change for years and, and partly because I think it's the base, most kind of important problem. If we don't solve it, everything else is in, you know, in trouble. But then, you know, over the last five years, the threat to democracy in the U.S. has made me think that's kind of the base problem because we can't solve climate change without a working democracy. I don't know if we can resolve all those issues. I think I think part of the answer is speaking the language that works for different stories, that there is there is a way within the conservative ideology to talk about why you would want to act on climate change. It's, it's conservative, quite literally, conserving our environment. It saves money. Like you can go down kind of a different set of arguments. It doesn't have to be you should love all the animals, right? You can go down different different paths that are all true that can bring people to act in the same way, even if they don't kind of come from the same philosophies. I mean, that's my hope. Um, and this is, I mean, but but part of it, this dilemma is why I work on business. That that to me, that's the lever, which is companies are huge. Um, they're as big as governments and they have people working for them and people buying from them that are on all those spectrums. And so if you get them to go down the path to solve these issues, because it's just good for their business, it brings along everybody. It has to, right? The employees are, are part of the ride The people buying their products are. So I, I think that's why I think of business as the important lever and the one that I've chosen to spend, you know, my career trying to push on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That kind of makes me think of, this idea of truth and which is a very tough word to talk about these days. Mm -hmm. But so if something is true and needed for human flourishing, which is the argument you're presenting Mm -hmm. that, that us acting in this manner is, is needed for that. Then I believe that any ideology, any political stance will, that truth element will be able to have its own narrative Right. in that the ideology that aligns with it because ultimately most ideologies are working towards human flourishing in in some form perhaps for a really small group perhaps at the expense yeah. of others but for a certain group of people and yeah. so 
perhaps there is per, perhaps there is these um these strong arguments in the narrative of a conservative mindset because yeah. for whatever reason it, it originated on the left um i can imagine a world where climate change originated on the right well <laughs> well actually let's let's remember that in the us um the creation of all the major laws and and government structures around doing something on the environment, the EPA, um, the National Environmental Council, Quality Council, like there's all these things and the major laws were passed under under um, Nixon. They actually were passed under Republicans and and Bush Sr. passed the update to the clean air law in 1990 that, you know, took on smog and took on acid rain. And I mean, the idea of a, um, a carbon trading system or some kind of market came from conservative think tanks and ideas. Again, we got into these tribes where for some, and, and it's a complicated story, but why this happened, where a party that was engaged on environment for, for kind of the shared reasons kind of moved away from it. Um, but you get at something I probably should have said before about, you know, going down different paths. The thing you can't avoid is that it, you have to be operating from a similar base of facts. You can interpret differently what we should do about a problem, but I, I frankly don't know what to do about the misinformation problem. It's affected, you know, people getting vaccines. It's affected our democracy, and it's certainly affected the climate change debate. There's been so much misinformation put out there. So, yes, we need to be operating from a place of fact. And it's one of the things I think, again, companies should be defending science and fact more and just being blunt with their own employees and their public statements like that's not true. Like this is what's true. Um, and, and I wish they had done more of that, you know, over the years, once a lot of companies were clear that climate change was a problem and were starting to act, they still let some voices in their organizations be climate deniers. But, but I've seen that get shut down in the last few years, pretty rapidly. Like I, I used to get into debates more with clients or there were people saying it was all a hoax, but they've gotten much quieter because their leadership in the company is saying, we're doing something about this. So it doesn't serve them very well to be out there saying this is all, you know, BS. So, I, you know, I, I think we're, we're seeing that shift, but you do have to start from some base of like, this is a problem and the science is real. And it is, as the IPCC says, unequivocal that this is, you know, humans and a serious problem. Well, while we're here solving the world's biggest problems, yeah. you know, you're saying you isolated climate change, and then you're like, oh, maybe it's um, these divisions in democracy yeah. currently. But then you talk about you don't know what to do with um, misinformation. And so maybe that's more fundamental to democracy in the sense that we have something going on right now that is accentuating these echo chambers and these tribes. And they certainly, all of them are rallying around talking points and often misinformation. And so maybe that's, you know, we're we're just finding all these issues here to deal with this problem of climate change. But maybe that's one of the really big ones is like, you know, is, is this, a social media thing? Is this like a, a new communications technology thing? And, and we need to figure out how to agree on how we're consuming information and then we can come together as a democracy and then we can come together on these bigger issues. Look, these things are all connected. Like I said, it's all systems. And 
No, what's going on with Facebook right now, I think, I think Facebook's, frankly, a disaster. I mean, I think it's, it's turned into one of the most negative forces on, in, you know, on humanity. It, the, the misinformation that gets you know, flowing around, but it's worse than that. The, the algorithms in these social media companies, they seek mainly clicks, right? Engagement and clicks. And what's, what's been discovered and what the algorithms, I think, in, increase is that what gets people clicking is outrage, right? Like, so mm-hmm. you can show them something that gets them outraged, even if it's not true, you get your clicks. So they're not at all trying to be a net positive company that would, you could have a social media company who, whose algorithms try to bring truth and facts and bring people together and help understanding um, and bring positive stories and not just outrage. I mean, outrage about something that's like actually true and wrong, you know, Outrage, like all of us marching after the George Floyd murder, we should be outraged, right? There is outrage over things that need outrage. Outrage over made-up things that just aren't even true is, it's hard to describe how detrimental that is for society, right? I mean, you're not even, you're not even mobilizing outrage to change something for the better. You're just mobilizing it around completely made-up stories, right? And, and that's a deep problem. And so, you know, part of what makes... Um, autocrats or dictators function is undermining fact, news, science, so that you tell your followers, you can only believe me, right? You can't believe anything else you hear. And we now have a decent chunk of the population in the US that's there, that does not trust a single thing they hear from, from the media. I, I, again, I don't know, I really don't know how you do that beside how you solve that. I, only thing I've ever come up with is that it has to be kind of a, a one-to-one process like family member to family member like you would with kind of a cult like getting someone out of this misinformation bubble they're in and kind of break the cycle but i don't know how you do that i think it's it's really complicated and it's it's a deep it's a deep problem yeah i've i've got a few close friends who are really into QAnon, and um someone someone really close to me they're one of their best friends uh just told them that you know it's I'm not trying to highlight it in a negative way at all, but that, you know, Fauci created the vaccine and all this stuff. And, and this person who's close to me is like really broken up about it. Cause they're like, I don't know what to do because this other person wants to sell everything and move to Alaska in the middle of nowhere to escape society. And anyways, I think everyone has these stories and there's people, you know, I don't believe in that stuff, but I recognize that people like in this guy's position, he thinks the same thing about, you know, perhaps myself, that I'm the crazy one. And so we all kind of are in this position where we have people close to us that we believe are crazy, no matter where you are in this system. And it's it's a very interesting time to be around right now because, yeah, we, we I think we all personally are experiencing this in some sort of way. Yeah, but I mean, you're being too kind in a way or too fair to say, well, everyone <laughs> thinks someone else is crazy because on many of these topics, there is actually the right or factual answer or situation. And, the, you know, it is not true that there's a cabal of um, people, tra- you know, trafficking in children um, and drinking yeah. their blood, right? This is a QAnon theory. Like, that's not true. So it's not, so to think that's crazy is the accurate 
view. I think. I mean, like it is crazy. Well, I guess I'm. Yeah, I guess I'm just saying, like from that human relational standpoint, yeah. everyone's feeling these odd tensions in relationships yeah. close to them. Oh, it's and it's, it's and so we can all family. empathize with that. Yeah. yeah, it's been breaking up families. Every everyone I know has mm-hmm. their father, or father-in-law, or a brother, or sister. You know, there's someone or multiple people in their family that have kind of been taken into QAnon or you know, believe the election was stolen, right? I mean, there's a lot of those people and, and it, none of it's factual, but it's, it's their truth. And so you're right from a perspective of how do you reach them? I, I, this is the problem, right? You always want to try to start from where someone is and understand where they are, but how do you start from like a truly insane theory, right? How do you, how do you start from there? I mean, I don't, I don't know. I'm sure there's people working on this. Um, You know, I'm sure it's something to get at people about why do they believe there's some cabal controlling, like, why do they need to believe that? Right. Well, I mean, when I, and I think it's partly because the real world is probably just chaos. Really. <laughs> the real world is not, I mean, the idea that there's some controlling lizard people, it's almost um, comforting. Yeah. Right? Even if you don't, well, you know, you think there's someone controlling it at least. Yeah. Well, you know, I thought about that a lot for a bit when um, flat earth first became a thing. Yeah. That was and so weird that that became a thing. I, NBA guys and was crazy. I yeah, I was very intrigued, like how people could become so they just believe the Earth is flat. And so I thought about it a ton, and I realized it was for me. My understanding is it's intellectual populism, and yeah. and that gets back to kind of the root of all what's going on is we're in such a stratified unequal state of affairs right now that you have political populism but you also have this intellectual populism of saying let's take flat earth as, as an example yeah. of oh you big you big government nasa all you smart scientists you think you know how the way the world is well actually i know how the world is and right. i think it it's a way to take power Right. You're you're taking control and power back because you've felt so powerless in some instance. Perhaps it's right. completely wrong, but I that that's my that's why I think there's a lot of these things going on right now. It's well, no, a I way think it to is. Feel it's always control. it's a belief in loss of power. It's why you see mm-hmm. white America or white male America feeling. Um, there was a line recently I've seen like if you've if you've come from a place of kind of where the where society's been kind of leaning towards you, equality seems like oppression i don't know the, i didn't get the line right but like that that it feels like oppression to say hey there should be representation in our jobs on you know in leadership they should represent america um and that seems like oppression or it seems like someone's taking your power you know and it it, it comes down to kind of like you know what kind of mindset do you have that the world is zero sum you know that there's just one piece of pie or that working together we make the pie bigger and 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 I think if you're caught in one mindset, you just feel like you're, yeah, you're out of control. And there's definitely that sense of, well, you know, I know better than all those guys. I know that the earth's actually flat, you know, or I know that climate change is a hoax. And and that gives, that does give people a sense of, of control, I guess. Mm-hmm. So I think probably wrapping up here, if you could have, I'm just, it just popped my head. I'm just kind of curious. If you could have one person read your book, mm-hmm. you're like, who would that one person be? Huh. One person. Well, I, well, I guess 
if I could have one person read it and it actually, and they con- converted them, like that would be a different answer. Like, you know, it'd be like Trump or something like you'd get someone who has this leadership that doesn't believe in anything, but get them to kind of flip. But I think, I don't know. I, that's a hard thing. I mean, we're trying to start a movement and get lots of people behind it. I, I, I guess if I thought about it, you know, you'd pick a world leader, but I, it might be just someone that people respect. I mean, maybe it's like Oprah, you know, it's someone, it's someone that has a lot of people that marketer at heart. Well, I just think it's someone that, but I think the reason someone like Oprah is so big is because people believe. And I think she is that she's genuine, right? That she's like, this is a Mm -hmm. book or this is a product or whatever that I enjoy. And I think everybody should enjoy it. Um, so I think I would want someone who could popularize it, right? Who could get it out there. I mean, because I could say, I mean, I could say many CEOs. I'd want to read it, obviously, and we are getting it to them. Or Joe Biden, you know, you want the you want the world leaders, but that's kind of obvious, you know. I think, and right now, as we've talked about, we're so split that like if it comes from one of those leaders, a lot of people just write it off. But if there's someone in yeah. between, like LeBron James, I don't know, someone that people generally like and has a following, you know, that has a lot of people behind them and is taken fairly seriously. Um, it would be great, you know, Bono, someone like, you know, someone like that. So mm-hmm. I think, I don't know, it's a fun question. You know, who, you know, who's the one that you think could take this out to the world and, and say, Hey, why yeah. don't we think about living this way? Well, I don't have Bono here, but I, I got LeBron and Oprah on dials. I'll, I'll let them know. Yeah, great. I'll drop, drop the text. If you could if yeah. you call Oprah for us, that would be great. Yeah, no problem. So where can folks find more of your work and uh, find this book? Yeah. So, <clears throat> excuse me. So, um, I'm, uh, andrewwinston.com. That's kind of obvious for me. And then there's a book site, uh, that's netpositive.world. You can go there, you can order the book, you can download some, some content, um, sign up for the kind of newsletter or, or um, kind of contact so that we will have a group of people. We have people signing up to be part of this movement and that's kind of, that's what we're looking for. Get everybody on board and say, okay, how do we do this together? So yeah, please visit um, netpositive.world. Awesome. Great. Well, Andrew, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. It's been a fun conversation. Thank you. Well, it looks like you stuck with us to the end. And thank you so much. Please like, subscribe, rate, and review. It honestly is the best way to help us reach a broader audience. And that's the only way we can keep bringing you good content every single week. And that is our goal here. So we look forward to seeing you next week. And thank you so much. Thank you.